You know, when I was a kid and we would go on car trips, we, didn't, we only had so many options of things to do on car trips. I don't know about you. It was uh, pretty much one option. Either the radio was on or it was off. Those, those, were, those were a bit of our options. Maybe you had, uh, we used to, at times we'd have little games we would do, like um, you'd slide like a, like a bingo type thing, like things you'd see on the side of the road. You'd slide it when you'd find it and, and check that off and play a game. And then that always, you didn't see one of those. I didn't see. That was, but that was about the limit of what we would do. These days, with uh, my kids, it's a little bit different, a lot different. I've uh, resigned myself to the uh, ubiquitousness of screens that are always present, whether it's a tablet, a phone, or something else. And then there's sometimes where I'll say, you know what, put the screens away. And uh, there are weeping and gnashing of teeth at those moments when I say that. And then when I do that, there's always the next, I know what the next statement is going to be. I, you don't, they don't have to say it. I know what it's going to be. It's going to be, what do we do now? Like, what could we possibly do if we have to put the screens away? There could not be possibly anything to do. The question they're asking is, what do we do while we're waiting? What do we do? And while that question at times can frustrate me as a parent, I actually recognize it's a reasonable question. What do we do while we are waiting? And that's what we've been talking about in this series. What do we do while we're waiting? And for the last couple weeks, we've been in Titus chapter 2, and we've said, look, while we're waiting, while we're here, those of us who are Christians, followers of Jesus, those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, and we're here, what do we do while we're here? And so for the last couple weeks, we've looked at Titus chapter 2, and a couple weeks ago, we looked at a message and said, one of the things we do while we're waiting, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, is we are to invest in other people if we're older, and if we're younger, we're to be learning from the older generation. And we said that week, and I'll remind you once again, older is not an insult, Older was a responsibility. It was, it was something that was looked at with, uh, with great honor. And we said, while you're waiting, if you're older, you are to be investing in the younger generation. Older men invest in the younger men. Older women invest in the younger women. And you are to be doing that. If you're a younger man or a younger woman, you are supposed to be looking to that older generation and learning about how to live and follow God. And there are a number of directives that are given there. But if I boiled it down to just a couple, uh, it was we are to learn to live self-controlled, godly lives. And there's individual things that are told to the older women, older men, younger men, younger women. But if I had to boil it down, generally, live self-controlled and godly lives are the instructions that are given to all those different groups of people. And then last week, we looked at a, a difficult passage, Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and these are the... Paul's words to bond servants, or some uh, translations uh, say slaves, and we talked about what that meant and, and how this is not endorsing or condoning slavery in any way. But what we said there was, while you're waiting, don't make an excuse for living an ungodly life. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in, we all have the responsibility to live a life of Christian conduct and witness. Now, we can never look at our responsibilities. We can never look at our life situation and said, I've got an excuse. I've got a reason not to live a life of Christian conduct and witness. 
No one can say that, basically, Paul is saying in that. So we have these things for the last couple of weeks. Live a life of Christian conduct and witness. Live a self-controlled life. Live a godly life. But then the question might come in your mind is how? How do you do that? A lot of directives, a lot of instruction, but how do you do that? And specifically, what motivates you and me to do that? Because motivation matters. Motivation matters when you are called to do something. So I don't know what you're motivated by. I don't know what motivates you. In fact, I want to take a second right now. I want you to turn to a person beside you. Tell them one thing that motivates you. Maybe it's chocolate. Maybe it's money. What is it? Tell someone beside you what motivates you. Can you think of something? Tell them what motivates What gets you going? What gets you excited? What are you willing to work for? What motivates you? It's, I heard someone say this shouldn't, but it does. Um, <laughs> We're all motivated by different things. And when you have to do something hard, what motivates you? So as a parent, like you often have to figure this out with your kids, and it's often different with each child, right? What will motivate one child may not necessarily motivate another child. You know, maybe someone can motivate you with chocolate, or maybe you hate chocolate. You know, I don't know what it is. But when we have something hard to do, motivation matters. Ask a woman who's about to give birth to a child for the first time or for the second or third time. What's the motivation to go through that pain, to go through that, you know, to go through that situation? I mean, I don't, I don't know all. I haven't, you know, I don't know. I imagine there's some differences, but I hope. And I think the main motivation is at the end of it, you get that hold, that beautiful baby. And that motivation matters. And motivation matters in that moment. Maybe you have the opportunity to have a promotion at work, but you've got to finish a degree first. And you go into those classes, and you're working your job, but you're going to those classes, trying to complete them, and, you know, what's going to get you through? You're thinking. You're motivated. Okay, I'm going to get this promotion. I'm going to get this advancement at work, and then I'm going to do whatever the end goal is from there. Or maybe you're a student in school, and you've uh, you've got a test coming up. How are you going to motivate yourself? Maybe you've got to stay up all night. What are you going to do? You need a motivation. And Paul knows that when he's called us to live these particular lives, that in order to do it, motivation matters. And so we have Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And I want to look at that this morning with you. Because sometimes when we look at things in Scripture that tell us we ought to do this and we should do this, that a lot of times we say, okay, I hear you. I ought to do this and I should do this, but I can't. I fall short. It's difficult. And then often the response is, well, try harder. Try harder to do this. And we try harder, but it's still difficult and it's still hard. I think in those times we need to understand what the motivation is of why we are called to live this life. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. This is what Paul writes. For, let's stop right there. For, okay, for is an important word right there. It's only three letters, but it's an extremely important word. Because in writing the word for, what Paul is saying, this is connected to everything I just said. 
Everything I just said before this about living a life of Christian conduct and witness, about, about the older investing in the younger and the young and, and, and living lives of, of self-control and godliness, all of that stuff is now connected to this. For. In fact, if you want, if it makes it easier in your mind, you can almost change that for to the word because. Because or for this reason. Here's the ground. Here's the motivation. Here's why all that stuff. And so he says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Two reasons, two motivations, real quick, real simple, not difficult that Paul gives, but really important this morning that I want us to look at. Two reasons, two events, one that's occurred in the past, one that's going to occur in the future, that Paul is saying is the reason that should motivate us to live these lives for God. And the first one he says is for the appearing, for God's grace has appeared bringing salvation to all people. And you look at that and you say, well, what is this God's grace that Paul is talking about? God's grace has appeared. He's very uh, specifically talking about one particular event in history. He's saying when Jesus came and lived his life and died on the cross and was resurrected, the grace of God has appeared to you. And so, why should you live a life for Christ? Why should you live a life of Christian character and contact? It is, I will call this the push of the past, the push of grace. When it comes to motivation, we have some things that push us, and then we have some things that pull us. And we're going to talk about what pulls us in a minute. But the first thing is what pushes us. And Paul's saying the main thing that motivates you to live your life for Christ is the push of grace. In other words, he's saying that, look, there was a time in history, there was a time in your life where you were completely without hope, that you were in a situation that you could not get yourself out of. And here's what he's talking about, this situation that we have found ourselves in apart from God. We place ourselves in with, through our disobedience and sin, and we find ourselves in a place separate from God. It's like finding ourselves in a pit that we can't get out of on our own. Now, it can be a very comfortable pit. There's some comfortable pits you can find yourself in. It has, you know, it has entertainment. You've got, you've got TV. You've got movies. You've got comfortable chairs. You've got, you've got good food. It's a, it could be a comfortable pit that you find yourselves in, but all the same with no door, no way out, no ladder, no hope until God reaches down in grace and says, I will make a way out for you. And so Paul is saying the appearing of grace in the past, the appearing of Jesus coming ought to be the motivation for you to live a life for him. And so 
You know, sometimes we find ourselves in places where we're called to do something that's difficult. And you say, how am I going to do this? I think it's those times we ask how, where we sometimes have lost sight of the grace that God has extended to us. Because if I'm in a situation where I have to love somebody that's difficult to love, and I find myself in that situation, or you find yourself in that situation maybe, where you know you're supposed to love somebody, but it's a difficult situation to love. Maybe they've hurt you. Maybe they've wronged you. Maybe they've hurt someone you love. And you would look and say, how can I love this person? I know God's called me to love my neighbor. I know God's even called me to love my enemy. But how? Well, if I struggle in that time, perhaps it's because I have lost sight of the grace of God that was extended to me, that God extended his love to even me when I did nothing to deserve it or merit it. In fact, that's what grace is, unmerited favor. Done nothing to deserve it, done nothing to earn it, but it's the unmerited favor of God. It's the unmerited favor of God, and so we receive grace from God. And we see, and so Paul says this should be the first thing that motivates you. Unmerited favor, it's nothing earned, it's nothing deserved, it's nothing that we've done that said God has to do this for us. It happens in our world from people to people at times. You know, you see situations of grace where people are given things that they didn't ask for or deserve or earn. You know, maybe you go to a restaurant and before you leave for lunch, you know, you tell your server, you know what, we want to buy the meal of that family over at that table. And then you walk out before they have a chance to know who it was or know what was done or anything else. And that family in that moment has received nothing less than grace. Nothing merited, nothing deserved, nothing they can do to, to make it happen. And that's what God offers us. And when we lose sight and we start in a situation, we say, how can we do this? How can I live a, how can you ask me to live a life following you in the situation I'm in? Paul's saying, for the grace of God has appeared. Don't lose sight of how much God has done for you. The push of grace that's upon us. But it's not just the push of grace. There's also a pull that happens. There's a future event that has not yet happened that Paul also points to. And he says this in verse 13, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says, there's a push of an event in the past that should motivate you to live this way, but then there's a pull of an event in the future that has not yet happened that also should motivate you, and that is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that day when Jesus will come back again and appear again, and that also should motivate you and me to live a life for God. The reality that Jesus is appearing again and coming again for his church. It's spoken about many places in Scripture and many different times in Scripture. And I just want to share a couple other places in Scripture where this is talked about. First uh, Peter chapter 3. Peter's talking about the coming of Jesus again. He says, but don't overlook this one fact because some people were saying, look, I don't think he's coming again. It's been a while. And this was only the first century. 
It's been a while. I don't think it's happening, Peter. Peter says, but don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What Peter's saying is, look, that appearance of grace is in effect right now, and God is offering this grace to all who would accept it and put their faith in Jesus Christ. He's not slow in keeping his promise. He hasn't forgotten about it. It's not that it's not going to come about, but he's left this time of grace to respond to it so that when he does come, you don't have to be afraid of it. So that when he does come, you don't have to fear him coming. It's kind of like the, 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 the parents that leaves his kids at home for the first time, right? And some of you parents have done that, or maybe you've been the child that's been left, and you get left at home with that responsibility. Now, if everything is in order and, and, and everything's good when the parents come home, you're not worried about that. Hey, mom and dad, how are you? Glad to see you. You hear the garage door open, maybe, and you're like, oh, good, mom and dad are home. But if something broke, or something went wrong, or something happened, and you, you hear that garage door, and all of a sudden your stomach gets in knots, and you tried to glue it back together, but maybe it doesn't look exactly right, or, or whatever it might be, and there's a fear that the parents are coming home. Paul is saying, look, you don't have to fear. When you've experienced the grace of God, you don't have to fear when Jesus is coming again. That's what this grace was given for. That you can, it's, it's a blessed hope, Paul calls it. A hope, not a fear, it's a hope. And so this motivates you to live your life for him. Another scripture speaking about the coming of Jesus is 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him with those who have fallen asleep. This passage goes on for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not proceed those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord and listen to these words. Therefore, encourage one another with these words couple things happen in this passage. One, Paul says the reason you can believe Jesus is coming again is because he came the first time. He says you can believe this because just as he came the first time, he's going to come again. Just as he kept his word and his promise the first time, you can trust that he's coming again. And then he also says encourage each other with the words. Encourage each other with this fact that he's coming again. So this is a motivation for us to live this life for God. It's the push and the pull of motivation. It's the hope that we have in Christ that puts us in this situation that motivates us to live for him. Sometimes we wonder what the motivation is. And it's the fact that Christ has extended grace to us and that he's coming again 
for us. It's the hope that we have in times of difficulty. Yesterday, um, one of uh, my professors from seminary passed away, Haddon Robinson, and he was one of my pro favorite professors, a well-known preaching professor. Some of you may have heard him on the show, Discover the Word. He was the host of Discover the Word for many years. And uh, the president of Gordon-Conwell put out a brief statement yesterday and said, we received the sad news of the passing this morning of our esteemed colleague and friend, Dr. Haddon Robinson. We'll miss him dearly and send our heartfelt sympathies to his devoted wife, Bonnie, and family. As soon as we have further details, we'll pass them on to you. We continue to thank God for Haddon's legacy and formative impact on the Gordon-Conwell community and the global church. And then he closes with this sentence. Though we mourn his loss, we find hope in the power of the resurrection. And that's the way we live. We live in this world between the grace that has appeared at the cross, the glory that's coming when Jesus returns, and the hope that we maintain in the midst of it. And so our lives in the present are affected by something that happened in the past, an actual historic event of history that God did when he broke into history himself and gave himself for our sin. And it's also affected by the future event that's coming. And then I know Jesus is coming again and that I'm hanging on to. And so in the present, my life is lived for God in between those events, but also in light of and in line with those two events in light of and in line with. So listen, listen to, the, listen to the, how I explain it. In light of, in other words, everything in my life I see by the light of the grace that I have received from God. Every difficulty in your life, every difficult person, every challenge in your life, every hard thing that comes your way, you see in the light of the grace of God that has extended, been extended to you. So that when I look at something and I say, this is unfair, I see it in light of God's grace that was extended to me that was completely unfair to me and to God. But yet he extended grace to me. And I see everything in light of that. I see everything in light of what God's grace has done for me. I see you and you see me in light of God's grace extended to each of us. But I also live my life in line with that. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Jesus coming and dying on the cross, being resurrected, was not only an act in history that was done for you, it was an example set for us of how we are supposed to live. So my life is to be lived in line with the example that my Lord has set for me. That idea of I have not come to be served, but to serve. That idea that Laying down your life for someone is the greatest act of love that you can give. The idea that Jesus came to accomplish a work of obedience to his Father. I live my life in light of that, but also in line with that. And that's the motivation for us living in this Christian life. It affects the way we live in the present. And Paul says this, in between the appearing of grace and the appearing of glory are these words in Titus chapter 2, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
And then the next, and then the end of this passage says, waiting for our blessed hope, which we read, the appearing of the glory of our God, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, look, you are saved and your life should reflect that saved life. Some people would say, well, grace has been extended so I can live my life any way we want, any way I want. Paul is saying, no, your life is to reflect the life of Christ within you, that you are to live a life of godliness, that you are to live a life upright, and you are to live a self-controlled life. So there are some things that Paul says, because you have been saved by grace and because you are looking forward to the appearing of glory and we are doing that, there are some things you should say no to and some things you need to say yes to. He says, say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness is external actions towards others. Worldly passions are my internal desires. He says, because grace has appeared to you, because glory will one day appear as Christ appears, you ought to live lives saying no to an ungodly lifestyle and saying no to the worldly passions that come up within you. You know, each of us have these things within us at times that we think we have no control over. Sometimes they come up in us, these worldly passions. Paul says, no, the grace of God and the glory of God, the grace of God pushing you, the glory of God pulling you ought to bring those things under control, those internal passions within you. That's the motivation. And then he says, say yes to self-control, say yes to living a godly lifestyle, and say yes to being upright in your actions. So how do you do this? What motivates you? What motivates you to be able to live a life like this? We live a life in a world that I would say has a great push and pull on you and on me. And it's not always in a godly direction. There are people that are pushing and pulling in all kinds of directions. The entertainment industry is pushing and pulling on you all the time. We have to be honest with ourselves that sometimes we watch things only to appeal to our worldly passions. And we have to be honest. God, would you help me, in light of the grace I've received, in light of the glory that's coming, to say no to those things you've called me to say no to, and to say yes to those things that you have called me to say yes to, to live a life for you, to live this life for you. How will you, when school, student, when your classmate comes up to you, pressuring you to participate in something that you know is not what God would want? to watch something, to talk in certain ways, supporting something you know what God is not, that God is not what God would want for you. What do you do in that moment? What do you do in that moment in the workplace where someone is offering you a situation that you know is gonna give you advancement but is going to have to force you to act in a way contrary to your values? What motivates you to stay true? What motivates you to say no? to ungodliness, what motivates you to say yes to being upright and godly in that situation, even though you know it may hurt you professionally, even though you, may, you know it may affect you with your peers or your fellow students or your friendships or your relationships, what in that moment is going to keep you true 
to the person God has called you to. Paul says it's this. Remember the grace that has been extended to you. Remember how, where God saved you from. Remember the appearing of the glory of Christ that is coming. And those things being sure and being true can give you the strength to live your life for him in between those two events. While you wait, let the push of grace and the pull of glory drive your behavior today. It's not about trying harder to impress God. It's about remembering what God has done and what he's going to do and allowing his work to train us to live as he's called us to live. Tim Chester in his commentary says it this way, we live between two appearances, grace and glory, and those appearances are the engine that drives the good life that we are called to live. As an example, let me just close with this illustration. Last year, there was a movie that came out called Lion, and it was telling the story of Saru Brierly. Saru grew up in rural India, and at five years old, he would often join his older brother as they scourged the floor of trains trying to find a loose coin or something that was left behind that would be of some value for his impoverished family. And they'd bring that back to their mom, uh, something of value. And, and when he was five years old, though, his brother and him went scurrying uh, to find something. His brother went off to find some work, and Saru didn't know this. They were only told later. Uh, but when he went off to find some work, his brother actually got hit by a train. And so Saru, at five years old, is left on the platform looking for his brother, not knowing where to go, not knowing what to do, and he starts searching a train like he always did, and he fell asleep on the train. The train happened to be a decommissioned train that was not stopping and was traveling 1,600 kilometers across India to Calcutta. He got stuck on this train with no way out, no way off, and he got stuck and he ended up 1,600 kilometers away in Calcutta. And eventually, on those streets of Calcutta, he was able to survive for some time through a number of different things and eventually got taken into an orphanage. After trying to find his parents, connect him, they couldn't really understand. They, they spoke different languages, but even when they found someone to speak his language, they weren't really able to find from what he was saying to be able to get back to where he was from. And so they ended up putting him up for adoption. And a family in Australia adopted him, and these are his adopted parents, and that's Saru, older and grown, and he gets adopted into this loving family in Australia, and he has, a, he has a great upbringing, and a great family loves him and cares for him, but then he starts, he always starts getting curious about his family, and in 2008, something he became aware of that he didn't know about was Google Earth. And Google Earth, many of you have done that, right? You get the little global, you click on places, and you can zoom in and zoom out. And someone had suggested, you know, maybe you can find your way home through Google Earth. 
And he started to do some calculations. He started to try and figure out, okay, I think I was on the train for this amount of time. Here's the speed that trains traveled in 1986. And here's the trains that went in and out of Calcutta. And he had a spider web of, of, of trains and times and things. And he'd start clicking all over Google Earth. Click, 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 trying to find stops. Click, click, click. He was trying to find stops of something that his five-year-old memories would recall. He eventually clicked on some place where he recognized a water tower, a train platform, and a bridge, and a ravine, and he knew he had found his boyhood home. And in February 2012, Saru traveled to India to his home and was reunited with his mother, Fatima, back in India. 2012, from 1986 to 2012, he's reunited with his mother in this beautiful, true story. He met his sister. He brought his parents over. If you watch the end of the movie, uh, they actually show some live video footage of his adopted mother meeting his, meeting his birth mother and this incredible story. And why do I tell this? Other than this is just a great story, why do I tell this story on this morning? Here's why. Because Saru's behavior was driven by his past encounter with his mother and his future hope of seeing her again. When we forget about the appearance of God's grace and when we stop remembering that Jesus is returning, we will lose the motivation to live out a godly life in the present day. It's the remembrance of what God has done in the past, the assurance of what he's going to do in the future that motivates you and I to live our lives for him now. So how do we live lives for God? How do we live lives of godliness? How do we live lives of Christian conduct and witness? How do we live lives... It's through the push of grace and the pull of glory, trusting that what God has done in the past is true and was gracious and is effective in our lives, trusting that what he's said in the future will happen. And so I live for him in between grace and glory. As we pray this morning, as our worship team comes and we prepare for a time of prayer, how do you respond to this word? How do we respond to this word from God? Well, I think for me, if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you find yourself in a situation where you say, you know what, sometimes I do lack the motivation to live my life for Christ. Sometimes the temptations of this world take precedence and draw me in. Those ungodly behaviors or worldly passions I find within me are taking too much control of my life. If that's the case for you, then maybe this morning your prayer is, God, I need a new picture of your grace. God, would you remind me how much I've been given? You ever see one of those TV shows where they give someone a house? Or they give someone something so unbelievable. I've seen so many of those and, you know, so many situations where you see those on TV. I have never once, every time I watch those, I've never once seen the host have to tell the person, 
Now, don't you have something to say to these people? Now, shouldn't you say thank you? Like, there's no need to prompt that response. I think what Paul's saying is when we have the true picture daily of what God has done for us, there's no need to prompt a response of living our lives for Christ. And if we have trouble with a motivation of living for God, maybe what we need to ask is not how do we try harder, but God, would you show me clearer how much you've actually done for me? Would you just, Lord, make it more real to me how gracious and loving that you have been to me? Because usually we've lost sight of that. We've gotten our eyes on ourselves We've gotten our eyes on the circumstances around us. We've lost sight of that grace. Or maybe you're like those people Peter was writing to, and you say, man, it's been so long. It seems like everything's just going along the way it always was. God, would you reassure me? In the midst of a world that often seems like it's falling apart, would you reassure me of your promises that you are coming again? This world and these circumstances are not forever. The world the way it is was not how it was created to be. It's not how it always was, and it's not how it always will be. And Lord, would you help me to trust and live knowing that you are coming back again. So I don't know where you are on this. Maybe you need to ask God, remind me and help me with that push of grace. Assure me of that pull of glory. And strengthen me to live that life for you in between. Would you stand as we respond to God's word this morning? Our elders will be at the front and they'll be there to pray for you and pray with you. This altar is open. You can sing and worship or you can come and kneel. I don't have anything to offer you today. This is God's grace given to us. This is what we have. This is why we gather. This is God himself. This is God saying he has given himself for us. It's an act of love. It's an act of grace. And it's an act worthy of our lives lived for him. And if you and I are in a place where that doesn't seem, that doesn't seem like the way we feel, that doesn't seem like the way we are, then our prayer today is, God, help me to see and understand how much you've really done for me. Help me to understand grace in a greater way. Father, would you speak to us this morning? We hear your word, and it's not a complicated one this morning. It's not hard to understand. But Lord, it is something that we sometimes lose sight of. We get so busy with the world around us. We get so busy what we think, with what we think we have to do. We get so busy with our responsibilities and every demand and, and, and thing that may be on us that we lose sight of what has been done for us. Lord, would you show us again today how good you have been. 
what you offer to us, Lord. We come to you. Speak to us and lead us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.